0: Hello, listeners. It's Lawrence Coletti, Executive Producer of Legal Talk Network. I want to tell you about one of our longest running and most informative shows, The Digital Edge. Each month, our expert hosts Sharon Nelson and Jim Calloway talk with renowned authors, speakers, and legal technology gurus about tools, tips, and tricks for running a successful legal practice. If you're seeking a competitive advantage for your firm, make sure to catch The Digital Edge on our website at LegalTalkNetwork.com, in Apple Podcasts, or on your favorite podcasting app. And now, onto the show welcome to thinking like a lawyer with your hosts ellie mistal and joe patrice talking about legal news and pop culture all while thinking like a lawyer here on legal talk network
1: Hello, welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law, and with me, as per usual, is Ellie Mistal, also from Above the Law. Hey.
2: It is hot, man. It is. It is. I don't have air conditioning in my uh, home office and usually have my fan on, but because we're recording, I'm just Ooh. I'm just sitting here in my wife beater, you know, showing off a little side man boob.
1: It's hot. Yeah, yeah yeah most people say like showing off the guns but you know i i know you so yeah the man boob well is you probably...
2: know i'm i'm very against the second amendment rights that we have oh. in this country so
1: yeah well i i kind of meant that more as a metaphor but i guess maybe maybe that was lost i'm proud of my man boob hey can i bitch about something right now oh well, i mean what would it be without that go on
2: So as you already know Joe, I spent most of my morning at the mechanic. Um, I found out last week that my uh, car was out of inspection Um, Mm. Apparently for about 17 days. I've been rolling around with a car out of inspection and as an African-American This scared the hell out of me. I don't usually miss the inspection date I realized that I was basically taking my life in my own hands for 17 days by driving around with this kind of minor violation. And while I'm sitting in a mechanic paying my $25 uh, in cash, of course, as it's required in New York state, it really made me think the way to save black lives involves having kind of robots or some kind of technology prosecute these traffic violations as opposed to like actual (laughs) human cops, right?
1: So you're going after droid police now because that never, ever goes wrong. (laughs)
2: I think uh, robo There's not
1: even movies about it or anything. Yeah. That's For <laughs>
2: 17 days, for 17 whole days, you know, I've gone and gotten gas, I've gone <laughs> to get my kids ice cream. There was multiple opportunities for the giant surveillance state to figure out that I have a, a car that's out of inspection and just send me the ticket in the mail. As opposed to literally risking my life by being stopped by a police officer um, who's going to stop me for that violation, and then who knows what threatening maneuver I'll make while I'm saying "What? I'm out of inspection." Like, who knows what that's yeah. going to do to my life?
1: Yeah, that that really seems like that's. Uh, yeah, that that seems like a nightmare scenario that we've played out in several dystopian films.
2: Don't you think RoboCop would be a more fair adjudicator of justice for all races than actual cops?
1: Well, no. Now you've set a fairly <laughs> high bar. Um, yeah. There you go with the turn. Not sure anybody has an answer to that. So um, fair enough. So, But your car is fixed now. Everything's fine. Everything's, everything's fine. I just have to make it from uh, here
2: to D.C. tomorrow without attracting the ire of law enforcement. I'll be great.
1: Well, there you go. All right, so let's actually talk about something substantive. So, you and I both watched a movie over the weekend, and we are going to talk about it. So, winter is we, coming. Oh wait, no, yeah, not that one. Oh, true. I guess I guess there was the Game of Thrones, uh, return, uh, which I didn't watch. Actually, I've kind of given up. I don't know.
2: Look, the world is so awful with the actual world that I, I appreciate the
1: why would I watch a TV show that's just going to make me sad? Fair enough. So. A story that was fairly big a while back was Hulk Hogan sued this company called Gawker that many of you may remember. Uh, By remember, I mean because it's not there anymore, largely because of this lawsuit.
2: We did a whole podcast on it. uh, We sure did. A couple couple of years, uh, maybe a year back by now.
1: Yeah. So that story, which we'll talk about here, kind of forms the initial frame for a broader documentary about the free press as a whole, and it's called Nobody Speak, Trials of the Free Press. It's on Netflix now, and we have the writer and director, Brian Knappenberger, with us today to kind of talk about the law and freedom of the press and the media all together. Uh, Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I'll say, so Ellie and I are both lawyers who have become journalists, so this really this whole case really was at the intersection of our lives. Uh, mm. And in a lot of ways, not not the least, both as an insult and compliment, depending on who's using it, above the law is often called Locker. So we're very looped into that world. I know a lot of the people who were in the documentary. And that's what I kind of loved about i asked a lot it. of people in the documentary to give me money. Yeah. <laughs> it, like, what, that's what got me, though, as I was watching it and just watching even in the background, all these people that I know and have met many times. And it's a story about something I know a lot about and I know all the people, but I'm still being, I catch myself being fully drawn into the narrative. Like, wow, then what happens? I'm like, I know what happens. Why am I? (laughs) But like, that's that's kind of a testament to how much I enjoyed the way the storytelling worked is I lost myself in something I already kind of knew about. Well, I love that. That's yeah. a
3: great, that's, I'll take that as a great compliment, actually.
1: Uh, if you already know the
3: details and you're still kind of on the edge of your seat, it doesn't get any better than that.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So I guess there's much more than just Gawker and Hulk Hogan in this movie, but I figure maybe that's the place to start. So mm-hmm. talk to us a little bit about why you thought that the Gawker-Hulk Hogan story was kind of the the frame with on which to build a larger story about freedom of the press. Yeah. I mean, it was started,
3: it started just by being really interested in the Hulk Hogan Gawker case uh, by itself. I was really captivated by what was going on there. You know, this was the first time a sex tape case like this had ever gone to trial. And, you know, despite the kind of veneer of tabloid kind of sensationalism, you could tell that there was some pretty big picture privacy versus First Amendment issues at stake. So... Uh, you know, in my previous work, I've done, you know, films that were largely kind of built around, you know, based on the First Amendment. Um, you know, I've done some privacy advocacy kind of work, too. So I, I just thought it was a really interesting case that might have some broad-reaching kind of ramifications. So that's how it started. But I, I didn't really dive into the documentary until this just staggering $140 million verdict, which was paired with a requirement for Gawker to put up $50 million right away. That was the death sentence of Gawker, basically. And then this very bizarre revelation that bankrolling kind of secretly in the background Hulk Hogan's case was Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel, one of the first outside investors of Facebook, co-founder of PayPal, you know, very famous in Silicon Valley, uh, very famous kind of venture capitalist. So that became something very different. Suddenly this story that that struck me first as a kind of balance between privacy and the First Amendment became about something different. And it really became about money leveraging against a press or trying to silence critical voices. So, And this was at the beginning of a, just a bizarre year in which Trump's rise was largely kind of based on attacking the media, uh, attacking the press. And, of course, Peter Thiel later spoke at the RNC and gave Trump money and became part of the transition team. So it was a story that kind of um, happens sometimes in documentaries. It starts off as one thing, and it really kind of reveals itself to be something very different.
2: At what point? I thought the documentary did a great job of pointing out how you know what Hulk Hogan was really trying to get out of this. Um, and one of the things that you point out, I think, correctly, is that while kind of up here at thirty thousand feet, the lawyers and the and the journalists are talking about privacy. For Hogan, it's also he's trying to, to quash video of him uh, using racial slurs, right? I mean that yeah. that's at a that's a core value for him <laughs> to get out of this case.
3: Yeah, I think that's true, and that's one of the things that is revealed in the course of this trial um, that nobody knew at the beginning. So. Um, Yeah. And if you talk to the Gawker folks, the people on the Gawker side, you say, well, that's probably what he was really, really concerned about. I mean, those tapes did eventually come out. You know, the National Enquirer and others printed stories about them. And um, that led to the end of his sort of career with the WWE, got him out of the, they kicked him out of the World Wrestling Hall of Fame. It was a big deal for him. That was sort of the real the real effect of all of this. Talking with uh, Nick Denton and some of the Gawker folks, they seem to think that that stuff probably never would have come out if not for this
2: lawsuit. For Teal, what was he getting out of it, right? Like, it's, I think that, you know, Joe has made the point repeatedly, I think, well, that, you know, from Teal's perspective, this wasn't necessarily a winning case. His, his goal was to just keep suing Gawker um, and yeah. kind of drive their liability shield up to a point where it was running their business was untenable.
3: That's true, and that's the thing that a lot of people don't necessarily realize about this case, that the Hulk Hogan, this was only one of the things that Peter Thiel was backing against Gawker, one of the kind of efforts in order to attack Gawker. Forbes has done a lot of great reporting on this, where they've kind of strung out all of the lawsuits that Charles Harder, uh, the lawyer that Peter Thiel was using, all of the lawsuits that he had brought against Gawker, some of those they can tie directly to Peter Thiel, some of them they can't, uh, some of them are just kind of suspicious. But um, yeah, this was only one part of a kind of broad attack on Gawker. The Hulk Hogan case was just the one that kind of uh, struck gold for them.
2: Uh, Brian, are you afraid? Having made this documentary, nobody speaks. Are you afraid that they're going to come after you? Because you know, I talk about Teal and Hogan with with real kid gloves because um, yeah. I want my job <laughs> uh, to be safe. Right?
3: Yeah. No, I get that, and and I, uh, you know, you don't make a documentary like this about highly litigious, thin skinned billionaires uh, who j- just seem to, you know, file lawsuits at the drop of a hat without being cautious. I mean, I, you know, I. Uh, but you know, I didn't do that much different than I would normally do in a documentary. I mean, we're usually very, very kind of careful about insurance, and we fact check things multiple times, and we're very careful about what we present. So, I mean, you know, maybe we sort of stepped it up a notch on this one, but it's really the same, the same kind of process we normally use. But. Yeah, no, I think it's a legitimate thing. I mean, you know, Sheldon Adelson, for instance, um, sued a reporter for the Wall Street Journal for calling him a foul-mouthed billionaire. Uh, This was a libel suit against them. And uh, the paper stood up and backed the reporter. Uh, It led to one of the most bizarre kind of uh, court transcripts you'll ever read because he actually, they're calling people on, you know, they're calling people up and asking them if you know they'd ever heard Sheldon Adelson use a specific you know curse word, and to, in order Truth to determine defense. the meaning of foul mouth. So that's uh, it gets a little surreal there, but yeah, this is the world we're in, and I think you know you you don't want to be chilled by that stuff. You want to sort of um, proceed and make the case of something that I think is
1: a real threat to journalism. One of the lessons of the teal stuff that always got me is that. It really speaks to the way that in the legal profession, you know, this is why we can't have nice things. Uh, (laughs) For a long time, we had rules to prevent people from funding litigations. Those have somewhat relaxed and brought up this whole industry of litigation financing, which kind of gives the little guy, theoretically, an opportunity to sue powerful interests because they might be backed by somebody who's investing and helping them for a little share on the back end. And it was – it has its – ethical issues but you know there's something of a good view of it at the end and uh this is why we can't have nice things it's been perverted into a guy paying every lawsuit in the sun against a company in order to drive up their bills and push them out yeah
3: i like i like the way you put that um It's true. You know, obviously litigation financing is a common thing. What I, you know, a lot of people say, well, what's the difference here between, you know, this Sierra Club or Greenpeace or something, you know, funding a lawsuit or ACLU. And for me, the difference is the secrecy of it. Um, You know, I just think that's very different, you know, as I understand it. And it sounds like you guys are, what'd you say, lawyers turned reporters. I I guess I'm a reporter- (laughs) becoming a lawyer or something. but um, It's a trap. But (laughs) It's a trap, I guess. But as I understand it, yeah, I mean, the the laws you're talking about are Champerty laws, right? Mm -hmm. So this was um, illegal uh, back to, I guess, common law all the way up until the 50s where, you know, it was illegal for a secret, you know, someone to fund a lawsuit in secret. Or I guess another word is maintenance where it's illegal for a third party to enter an existing lawsuit and try to prohibit the parties from settling or extending the dispute. And the way I understand it is that those were those were overturned in the late 50s when the NAACP was filing lawsuits against uh, segregation. And the opponents to the NAACP wanted to force the NAACP to reveal their donors list. And the court said no. And that's, I guess, there's only a gray area on that in a couple of states, in Florida and uh, I think also Nevada, but a lot of champerty laws are still on the books, so it's not—it's far from a kind of clear-cut legal area, as I understand it. But I'm not saying that what Peter Teal did was illegal for sure. It's—it's it's legal, and that—that's kind of what worries me.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that when I think of the real bad guy here, it's easy to think about Teal. It's easy to think about Hogan, but I also uh, personally think that the real bad guy here is the dumbass Florida jury. <laughs> um, you know just because somebody throws a lawsuit up in front of you doesn't mean that you have to vote for liability it certainly doesn't yeah. mean that you have to vote for 140 million dollars of liability
3: well it's just it's staggering and and one of the things that was so shocking is that you know that the judge in this case uh, yeah. Pamela Campbell, who was the lawyer for the parents of Terry Schiavo, which, you know, back, if everybody remembers that, that was the big sort of liberal versus conservative brouhaha of its time, right? Um, I know the seminal South Park episode on that where it turns into
2: a tomato. (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. That was a big deal. Anyway, she was she was a lawyer, uh, you know, the, the attorney for the parents of Terry Schiavo. She was appointed by Jeb Bush, and a lot of people thought she was biased in this case when she kind of um, lamented in front of the jury that uh, her state of online journalism. That she, people said she shouldn't have done that, but even she told the jury, "You're not supposed to bankrupt Gawker here. You have to. You have to. You know. You can't put them in a position where they can't." we have to, are forced to go out of business. Then of course, that's exactly what happened.
1: Yeah, you know, well, let's transition to, we've already kind of talked about Shelley Adelson, but but there's another aspect of this movie that goes down the kind of the sad story of the RJ out in Las Vegas and Mm -hmm. Sheldon Adelson's efforts to uh, get more favorable media coverage out there.
3: Yeah, that that bothers me, that story bothered me. Well, first of all, I love the story of the reporters there. Mm-hmm. Um, I just f- admired what they did there. Um, but that, that bothers me for a similar reason to what Mr. Teal did. Um, Sheldon Adelson bought that newspaper in secret. And you know that's a problem. Uh, that's a problem for a newspaper. You know, it's not that very wealthy individuals haven't owned newspapers before. Of course, they have. But um, the idea that it would be done in secret, in which you wouldn't, you wouldn't know what the expectations were, you wouldn't know what the perspective was, you wouldn't know where there were conflicts of interests of the actual owner. That part is particularly egregious. So basically, we tell that story. We tell the story of. Uh, group of reporters that were called into a big meeting, told their, the newspaper was, was sold. And when they asked well, who bought our paper, who owns our company, uh, who's our boss, uh, they were told, don't worry about it. So uh, that story is a story of them trying to, uh, them worrying about it and, and yeah. going to figure
2: out who bought their paper. So in that case and Shelly Shelley Addison is always my my pick for for main criminal here, main bad guy um yeah. for this. <laughs> um, Joe, you were making the point that the rich people buying up the news is nothing new that I and that I shouldn't be as worried about it.
3: Yeah, I mean look, I think I, I think there's still cause to be worried about that. I, you know, I, I what what really pushes it over the edge for me is the secrecy, a lack of transparency. That's the part in both of these cases that really starts, I think, is really egregious. I still think you have to watch, I mean, even someone like uh, Jeff Bezos who bought the Washington Post, I mean, you know, by all accounts, that's a pretty traditional uh, stewardship of the Washington Post, that he's pretty hands-off and all that. But you still have to watch uh, that coverage very carefully. How do they deal with, you know, Amazon buying Whole Foods or something? You know, it's, it's still something that you have to be aware of, but you can't be aware of it if you don't even know who
2: it is. I mean, there's something about the secrecy that I find really uh, troubling. Uh, so, Brian, with the Adelson thing and with the uh, secrecy that you're worried about, I have to once again kind of bring it back to the public. And I wonder, you know, at what point do we need the public to kind of stand up and demand better, um, demand more transparency, um, demand better from journalists? You know, at what point is the public going to be willing to perhaps, I don't know, pay for journalism so that we don't have to rely on Shelley Adelson or Jeff Bezos to do it? <laughs> Uh well, right now. Um,
3: I mean, I think it's critical for people to kind of stand up for this and also support journalism that they think is doing, you know, doing the right what journalism is supposed to do, speak truth to power and question power and look out for the public interest and all of that and, and try to surface the truth in any any given uh you know, story. So Yeah. You know, we're in a very difficult position right now where, you know, we've in the last few decades, of course, inequality is just gotten out of control, completely staggering. And at the same time, journalism is more vulnerable than it's ever been. It's lost so much of its traditional sources of revenue to the Internet. So, you know, early on, uh, you know, there was a kind of collective decision to sort of give some of that content away. um, And, you know, we're feeling the the results of that. Uh, So... You know, the old model isn't of journalism is dead and the new one hasn't quite been born, but um, it's really important that we figure this out and and uh, we find a way to uh, support journalists. Um, I mean, I think we're even in a position now where we have to stand up for the concept itself. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. why do we need this journalist? I mean... No president in history has liked the press. That's never happened. Um, of course, I mean, even Obama made the kind of speech to the press club at the end. He said, "You know, I never liked you guys, but I support the notion of a free press, and I and I support your you coming after me." That's kind of the point. And so, you know, we're in this position now where we just get this wave of deceitfulness and lies coming out of the executive branch, and and we, it's so clear why this is important. So. Uh, hopefully we're in a transition period where we're remembering what the press was there for in the first place.
1: You know, that hits on, and I'm glad that what you just said shows that it wasn't just me kind of drawing this conclusion from the documentary, but it really was something you were going for, that I'm kind of noted as a bit of a First Amendment hater. And by that, I mean, I'm not against the First Amendment, but I I have a kind of a problem with some of the First Amendment fundamentalism out there. And for the same reasons, I have problems with a lot of fundamentalism, that when you kind of, boil things down to just, we're just going to follow the words, and that's what we're going to do. Mischief happens, you know, like you get people invoking freedom of religion to go after LGBTQ communities and stuff. So I've always had issues with that. And so I loved how the documentary builds up why we actually need a free press and doesn't kind of rely on the idea of, hey, you know, it's a necessary evil. And hey, it's it's written there. And that's what the framers, like it, it goes that next bit to be like, now you've always heard you need a free press. Here's why you need a free press, which I think people need to be reminded of a lot.
3: Yeah, I think so. And there's some reason for hope, at least a kind of glimmer of hope, where, you know, yeah, I think a lot, there's certainly legitimate criticism of the press. It's gotten too cozy to power, that it's gotten too corporatized over time, that it's gotten, uh, you know, trades softball stories for access to power and celebrity. And, there's something about Trump that has kind of uh, reinvigorated it. It kind of reminded people what they were there for in the first place, and I and I hope that continues. Uh, I hope that you know, that, like these like these uh, these press conferences are so absurd. Yeah. I mean,
2: you have to put some serious scare quotes around press conferences. <laughs>
3: yeah. I mean, you just shake your head. And you, it's hard to understand what the value is of a press conference and in terms of trying to get at the truth. And so, uh, especially the way it is now. And, and then of course, banning cameras and all this stuff. So it's, you know, it's important. You know, this is this is how, you can't have a substantive debate about any policy issue unless you can
1: get at what the truth is yeah yep. yeah and and it's it's important to get not you know get those reasons back because uh, like you said there is something kind of corroding a little bit at what media is with the softballs and so on that have happened over the years and when all that stuff happened it it can be easily brushed aside with a kind of what I'm criticizing as the fundamentalist oh well that's the press and just the press blah 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 but get back to hey this is what you guys are supposed to be doing uh it's not just writing your softball story and being able to have somebody on a sunday show it's yeah it's actually getting your your job is i think uh i think it was cook who said it uh in the documentary but like the thing you should be proud of is you pissed off a billionaire that's that's what should make you happy yeah
2: all right, Brian. Uh, closing question: um, Since you are unchilled by pissing off billionaires, um, what's what's next for you? I <laughs> uh, wouldn't go that far. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, I, you have to
3: be. I, I'm I'm continuing to work on a couple of other documentaries. Um, just you know, I, I'm just really fascinated with you know the way our kind of world is changing with technology and um the way we communicate and private information and all that stuff and the way that whenever that kind of brushes up against i guess what i guess you'd call kind of traditional values or human rights or civil liberties i just think that's the world we're in we're trying to figure that out now it's new it's new ground and i know that's vague but (laughs) that's the kind of landscape that i'm working in and, and interested in so we're working on a couple more documentaries and and, um actually, maybe a narrative piece, which is new for me cool,
1: so you have multiple projects in you know irons in the fire all at once, yeah, at various stages wow. of heat, I guess <laughs> I could not keep that many things that straight in my head <laughs> 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 like I, I pride myself on multitasking, but i having all of these clips and editing and like all these ideas, learning different fields uh yeah that that would be. That's impressive.
3: That's insane. Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks.
1: Yeah. Well, all right. Ellie, do you have anything else before I go to wrap up?
2: Uh, No, I was talking about irons in the fire. Yeah, no. I'm also (laughs) thinking about all the other things that I have to do after we've finished recording, many of them involving my children who always get the short shrift.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, and, and you've got a pack for your trip, it sounds like. All right. Well, okay. I don't know about the robot thing, though. That's... Um, That's.
3: I mean, right? That seems I'm crazy. I'm usually... It's an interesting argument. I am usually on the other side of it in terms of, like, license plate readers and... Uh, facial recognition software and stuff and the privacy concerns of that. But I do kind of get what you're saying, though.
2: No, I I honestly think that as uh, as a black person in this country, I mean, if, if the thing that helps me most is a robot as opposed to a person, the thing I want my kid, my young black sons, right, to confront a robot cop as opposed to a real actual cop, they'll be safer that way. I'll pay you the fine. I don't care.
3: <laughs> do you think there's a no? I totally and 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 it's physical safe. You know, I mean, I totally get that. But do you think there's something like uh, in in um, I don't know if you guys are gonna use this. I'm just talking. <laughs> but like, oh do, no, this is uh, great. In the like, for instance, license plate readers and the ability to sort of track and trace. I mean, and surveillance stuff. Isn't that kind of generally speaking been biased against kind of the same communities that are targeted by police? I
2: mean, sure, and Muslim I think and I, I mean,
3: isn't that technology kind of Done that. I, I,
2: I think you're absolutely right. I think that that will continue to happen. I'll go kind of Maslow's hierarchy of needs on you, right? Like the, mm-hmm. the thing that I need most and most importantly, is the physical safety of myself and my children, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I need to establish that, which I clearly don't have. Once I establish that, then we can talk about if those readers, if that surveillance state kind of unfairly or unwarrantedly harasses and oppresses vulnerable communities. That's a legitimate concern. But we can't get to that legitimate concern until we establish some basic level of safety from the police state, which we just clearly don't have right now.
3: Hmm. Wow, it's fascinating. Yeah, I've just never heard that. I, I, I hear it. I, I get it.
1: Yeah. I mean, this really gets to... This relates perfectly, actually. like It's almost like we planned this segue, but we didn't. Um, this gets to that whole you know, uh, this is why we can't have nice things. Uh, I think that, (laughs) I think that, you know, and and we go down this road and you know, there's a, we need a nuanced approach to know, like, maybe it's not just surveillance. Maybe there are folks who need like the, the physical safety, but then this is why you can't have nice things. I'm positive that all that data gets perverted on the back end into something, something that we can't even predict. Yeah. Which is what I've
3: normally been kind of more concerned about, but yeah, I get it. That's interesting
1: that's a great discussion that we should get some robot expert on and keep going with this, uh, for the future.
3: Well, when, when those robots get hacked, then that's, that'll be interesting. Well,
1: yeah, then that's, oh, yeah, we can, we yeah, live in great. weird times. Let's, 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 maybe we could just agree on that. <laughs> and scene. <laughs> and scene. It's weird ass damn time. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. That's Brian Knappenberger, the writer-director of Nobody Speak, Trials of the Free Press. You can watch it on Netflix like we all did. It's a great documentary about why we need a free press and all the threats that that currently faces. Uh, Thanks for coming on. Thanks a lot for having me, guys. And thank you all for listening. Uh, If you are not subscribed to us through some various podcast subscriber, you should do that. That way you get every episode when they come out. You should also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Joseph Patrice. He's at L-E-N-Y-C. You should give reviews to the podcast that helps us be seen by more people. You should get the LTN app to listen to more podcasts from our sister podcasts in the LTN network. Those are all things you should do. You should read above the law because— or as some people call it, locker, because we put out good stuff there, you know. And we're still here. And we're <laughs> still here for now. Well, we haven't published any nude pictures of Sam Alito yet, <laughs> uh, if anyone's listening. So uh, that maybe that's why we're still That'd be here. A
3: specific kind of deterrence
1: there, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. And and with that, we'll uh, we'll talk to you soon on another episode. Good. Looking forward to it. Stay cool, everybody. Bye. If
0: you'd like more information about what you have heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.